Well, it's my joy each week to spend time reading through the scripture and considering them and preparing to share them with you. And I've heard this message, and it's a harder message than maybe we prefer to hear, but I think it's an important one. So I'm glad for the work that God is already doing in my heart, and I trust that he will work in your heart as you hear the word this morning as well. I hope you'll take your Bibles and open to Mark chapter 11. Mark chapter 11. I'm sure we all have days, I'm sure you've had days that went differently than you expected that they would. This morning as we come to Mark 11, we're going to consider a day that I would have to guess went differently than the disciples of Jesus expected that it would. If you're with us last week, then you'll remember that we followed Jesus as he walked into Jerusalem. And this was a spectacular day in so many ways. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey, and he's welcomed by crowds as a coming king. There's people laying down palm branches on the road, people even taking off their coats and spreading them on the ground so that Jesus walks, rides in rather on this carpet of sorts. They're singing songs, proclaiming him as the promised savior of Israel. Sunday, it's the day we refer to as Palm Sunday. At the end of that day, Jesus goes to the temple. We're told that he looked around and then he leaves. He and the disciples go back to Bethany, suburb outside the city where they're staying. The next morning, he and the disciples head back into Jerusalem. This time it's different. I wonder, think about how the disciples would feel Sunday night as they go to bed. After what they'd seen that day. So many ways, that day probably felt like a culmination, right? They've been following Jesus, going to Jerusalem. Now they get there and he's praised and welcomed. And I wonder if they went to bed that night just a little bit with the adrenaline pumping. Maybe hard to go to sleep after all that they had seen and heard. But Monday would bring different emotions. My guess is that when they go to bed on Monday, they were more anxious because Monday was different. And quite frankly, it's a day that not only was hard for them, but it's a day that many people have a hard time, even Christians have a hard time talking about this particular day. In fact, it's a day that's brought up maybe more often by those who don't believe in Jesus to try to poke at our faith. And the reason is because it's a day when Jesus shows a side of himself that makes many of us uncomfortable. See, on Sunday night, Jesus had gone into the temple, looked around, and it's quiet and it's peaceful. But on Monday, he goes back into the temple and there's a very different scene. This time, he makes his presence known in a significant way. This time, he flips tables. He drives people out with a whip. He makes pointed statements that this is not the way things should be. And it's a side of Jesus that we've never seen this way before. Maybe that we try not to think about. His righteous anger, his pronouncements of judgment, 
Like I said, this is a scene that often skeptics or opponents of Christianity will bring up. Sometimes they say, hey, you remember that time when Jesus completely lost it? Seeing that the temper got the best of him? Maybe Jesus isn't as innocent and blameless as we claim. And the truth is, there are even a lot of Christians who just frankly don't know what to do with this day. We would just as soon skip from Palm Sunday and go on with the rest of the week. What do we do with a Jesus who flips over tables and pronounces curses? This morning, I want to encourage us to consider that this is not a day in the life of Jesus that should be dismissed or ignored. It's not a story we should shy away from. It's not something we need to try to explain away. But it is a story that we need to pay close attention to. You know, two weeks ago, we talked about the heart of Jesus for those who come to him in humble faith. And I enjoyed preaching that message. I love reminding you that Jesus is merciful and kind, and if you come to him in humility, he will forgive and he will save, and there is hope in him, and that is true. This morning, we have a reminder that Jesus came because, by and large, the people of God had not lived in humility. The story of the Old Testament is the story of the people of God who continuously turned their backs, who went their own way. They built this religious system that had the appearance of godliness, but it was hollow and empty. So part of the reason Jesus came in compassion and in mercy was so that the people of God would see their hypocrisy, their wickedness. Jesus came to announce judgment on all those who would continue to live in pride and rebellion. And while this is the first time that Jesus shows his displeasure in this way, we've heard this tone from Jesus before, haven't we? With the Pharisees and the conversations that he has with them. We've heard his righteous anger before. We've heard his pronouncements of judgment. And like I said, maybe this isn't a view of Jesus that you prefer to think about. But I do want to plead with you. Don't miss what's being told here. Can I encourage you to lean in, to pay attention, to hear the warnings? This passage, we are reminded that God hates hypocrisy. That his judgment is sure. He is compassionate and merciful towards all those who come to him in humble faith. But he is just. And he will not. He will not let go those who oppose him. This day, this Monday, was not a day that disciples probably expected. And it's a day we may be inclined to rush past or minimize, but it is important. And it's is, in fact, a story about the heart of Christ and our need for him. So with that in mind, let's go to the scriptures. Mark chapter 11. Just remember, this is the day after the triumphal entry. Jesus and his disciples have spent the night in the suburbs at Mary and Martha's house, and now they are headed back into town. We pick up reading in verse number 12. On the following day, when they came from Bethany, Jesus was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, 
he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And Jesus said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the disciples heard it. And then they came to Jerusalem. And Jesus entered the temple, and he began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them the saying to them that, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. And the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking a way to destroy him because they feared him, because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. As they passed by in the morning, they saw a fig tree. They saw the fig tree, rather, withered away to its roots. And Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. I hope it's your prayer that God would do his work in us through the hearing and preaching of his word. Now, hopefully what you noticed as we read is that we have two stories here. It's not only the story about Jesus in the temple, but it's a story about Jesus and a tree. And what I want to help you see this morning is that we have two stories, but we have one message. Everyone breathes a sigh of relief. Maybe we're not going to get two messages. No, we have two stories and they work together. And this is something we've seen in Mark before. If you've been with us, you may remember this. That there are times when Mark starts a story, tells a different story, and then comes back and finishes the first And it's not because he's scatterbrained, and it's not even just because he's following the chronology of the events, although in this case he is. What he's doing is helping us see that these stories have the same message. The story on either side helps us understand what happens in the middle. So what Jesus does on the way into Jerusalem with the tree was meant to help his disciples interpret what happened in Jerusalem. So we're going to look at the tree. And then we're going to look at the temple and we'll consider what this one message is that's being told both through the tree and through Jesus' work in the temple. So we'll start with the story of the tree. It's Monday morning. Jesus and his disciples are making their way from Bethany back into Jerusalem. We're told that Jesus is hungry. Which is in part just a cool reminder of the humanity of Jesus. That he really did live as we live. He felt like we feel. He knows what it's like to miss breakfast and get hungry. So they're walking and maybe his stomach's growling. And he sees a fig tree. And it's a fig tree that has leaves on it. Now, I will tell you this, that I I spent more time reading and thinking about fig trees this week than I expected to. (laughs) And up to this point, most of my experience with figs had to do with cookies. But this week I did learn some things about fig trees, and particularly fig trees in Palestine, and when they bloom and when they don't, and what their pattern of growth is, and I won't bore you with all the details. Except to say that, one, I'm thankful that there are people who have done the hard work of helping us think through these things well. But what what you should know is that 
This is springtime. This is Passover. And it was not quite to the time when figs would generally be on the trees. Most likely, this is a little bit before fig season. And Mark says as much. He says this wasn't the season for figs. But here's what else I learned about fig trees. Leaves are a sign of fruit. And so it wasn't fig tree season, or excuse me, it wasn't fig season yet. It wasn't harvest season yet, but, but there's a fig tree and it has leaves, which means maybe it bloomed early. And maybe there wouldn't be full ripe fruit, but maybe there would be something, a snack of some kind. So Jesus goes to the tree. They're walking down the road. You can imagine the conversation. Jesus says, I'm hungry. I'm going to go check out that tree. It has leaves on it. Go check it out. And he walks over, but what does he find? But just what he saw, leaves. He was hungry. He thought he'd found a place to get a snack, but it didn't work out. And if that was the whole story, then it wouldn't be much of a story at all. But that's not where the story ends. And there's more to this story than a missed opportunity for a snack. And we know there's more because the way Jesus responds to the tree it's a response that may seem a little bit over the top. Mark tells us that after looking at the tree and not finding any fruit on it, Jesus curses the tree. He doesn't curse at it. He curses it. He pronounces a curse. Look at verse 14. Jesus says to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. His disciples heard it. What's going on? I mean, what if you pulled over to the side of the road at a convenience store hoping for a snack and it was closed? Did you kick the door and curse the building? What's going on here? Is Jesus grumpy because he's hungry? I've been there. Is he lashing out because he didn't get what he wanted? Is he misusing his power as God? Is Jesus being petty? childish, maybe even sinful. If we didn't know anything else about Jesus, perhaps we could come to these conclusions. And if this story existed on its own outside of the whole of Scripture, maybe there would be a case to be made that Jesus was simply overacting, but I don't think we have that ability with Jesus, do we? We know that everything he does has a purpose. We believe that he is sinless and perfect. So we have to ask more questions. Why? The context helps. We'll see how this story is connected to the story of the temple, and so that helps us. We can also be helped, if we're careful students of the Scripture, to recognize that this isn't the first time we've heard of figs. In fact, I counted no less than 15 times that figs are referenced in the Old Testament and almost exclusively in regards to the nation of Israel. Let me give you a couple of examples. I'll start with a more positive one because most of them aren't. Hosea chapter 9, God says this through the prophet. Like grapes in the wilderness, I found Israel. Like the first fruit on the fig tree, in its first season, I saw your fathers. There's not many positive examples, not many times that this is used positively, but here we see Jesus sees, he thinks back to Israel. Says they're like a, a fruitful fig tree. 
But as we move through the Old Testament, especially through the prophets, we see over and over that Jesus compare, or excuse me, God compares Israel to a fig tree, but most of the time he's speaking of their barrenness, of their lack of fruit. And often we see his judgment expressed as he expresses that he will cut down the fig tree for its lack of fruit. Consider Jeremiah 8, verse 13. God says, when I would gather them, declares the Lord, there are no grapes on the vine nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered, and what I gave them has passed away from them. Israel's like a barren, fruitless tree. Go to Micah, chapter 7, verse 1. Woe is me, for I have become as when the summer fruit has been gathered, as when the grapes have been gleaned, and there is no cluster to eat, no first ripe fig that my soul desires. The godly has perished from the earth. There is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hands are on what is evil to do it well. Do you hear the frustration there? There's no tree that has fruit. In fact, all have turned away. All have gone after their own lusts and pleasures. They pursue evil with zeal. The prophet's describing a rebellious people. And my point in all this is that this is a common image. Over and over, the prophets tell us that Israel is like a fig tree that has not borne fruit. Over and over, we see the anger of God towards the barren tree. And it's in this context that we come to this Monday morning. When Jesus sees a tree and goes to find fruit, and it looks like it should have fruit, but there's nothing there. In so many ways, Israel was a people who looked good on the outside but produced nothing good. What we see here is an image of hypocrisy, isn't it? And it's the same thing that Jesus pointed out over and over with the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the outside of the plate, but inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. It's the way Jesus over and over has described the Pharisees, and it's vivid language, isn't it? These elegant tombs. Maybe, maybe you're not like me. I, I don't mind walking through a cemetery. In fact, I kind of enjoy it. It's usually peaceful. You can look at some really nice work that's been done on granite. It's a very different story when you start digging up those graves, though, isn't it? Jesus says, outwardly, you look beautiful, but you are filled with dead men's bones. And that's the same thing we see with the fig tree. It looked attractive. It looked fruitful, but on closer inspection, there was nothing there. 
And it's because of this that Jesus curses the tree. And it's not really about the tree at all, is it? It's a parable. Jesus is announcing that judgment will come against the nation of Israel because of their hypocrisy, because of their idolatry. They had rejected God. It's because of their rejection that Jesus has come. They've broken the covenant with God. Now Jesus has come to establish a new and a better covenant. This is about much more than a tree. This is a parable about the history of redemption, about the wickedness of the people of God. It's about God setting aside the nation of Israel because of their unfaithfulness. And we could spend quite a bit of time just talking about Israel and their history and God setting them aside. We could go deep into the theology of the history of redemption. But let us not miss this. That the story of Israel is given in part for an example to us. Remember 1 Corinthians 10? We're told this is an example for you. And we can also be lured into the danger of hypocrisy. We can be guilty of having a facade of godliness. To look the part. To do all the right things outwardly. To be Christians who go to church and do the church thing and do it well. All the while being cold and callous. It's true, isn't it? That we can appear to be something that we're not. That we can be full of leaves and yet have no fruit. It's a common temptation, but don't miss this. That Jesus comes and he inspects the tree. We may be able to fool other people, but God is not blind towards your hypocrisy, even if everyone else is. Now let me stop and say this. Because all of us, especially those of sensitive conscience, could say, that's me. And there's a sense in which it is all of us. Because none of us is perfect. But what we're talking about here is a heart that will not repent. That does not turn back to God. This passage is about far more than a tree. And we actually understand that even more as we move into the next story. It's interesting, Mark says there, Jesus pronounces this curse on the tree and the disciples heard it. Mark tells us they, they heard it. We'll come back and pick up the story again in verses 20 and 21. And I think what Jesus is doing here in cursing the tree and allowing the disciples to hear it is he's preparing them for what's going to happen when they get into town. It's foreshadowing. And they may not, probably did not make the connection in real time. But perhaps they would look back. And we even see that Peter does this, looks back and he sees it. What Jesus does with the tree explains his actions in the temple. So now we come to this story that we've already admitted is hard to understand, but the, what happens with the tree helps. We're told there that they go into Jerusalem, they go to the temple. I wonder what you think of when you think of the temple. If you think of something small, you're wrong. This is a big and impressive place. A little history, a little reminder, this is the third temple. Remember about... 600 BC, 600 years before Christ, Solomon built the temple. By the judgment of God and through the Babylonians, that temple was destroyed about 500 years before the birth of Christ. 
Then the temple was rebuilt, this time in a much less impressive way. It didn't have the magnificence of Solomon's temple. And over years and through battles, it was not in great shape. So about 25 years before Christ was born, Herod the Great began building the temple that Jesus would see. In fact, its construction wasn't completed by the time Jesus came. It started 25 years before his birth and didn't end for a couple decades after. This was a long construction process and turned into what became one of the great wonders of the ancient world. Just to give you an idea of the scope, this is a, a complex of about 35 acres. Some of you say, oh yeah, 35 acres, and some of you still don't know what that means. Think 26 football fields. It's a big place. Not just in size, but in beauty and splendor. Built with detail and opulence. I read that if the pillars around the porch, if, if three men held arms, they could barely reach around. And this is before trucks with concrete mixers and this sort of thing, right? It's an incredible place. And it's divided into four parts. The primary parts are in the middle, the court of the women and the court of the Jews and the Holy of Holies. But all around it is this court called the court of the Gentiles. This outer court was the biggest part of the complex and it, it wasn't restricted to Jews. Anyone could come into the court of the Gentiles. And it was intended by God, placed there as a place of worship and a place of prayer. But we know that by the time of Christ, the court of the Gentiles wasn't being used the way God intended. Instead, it was a place for commerce. There were animals being bought and sold, money changing hands. And there was a reason for it. We could make a, there could be a good argument made for why this was all taking place. People would come to Jerusalem to make sacrifices at the temple. This is Passover week. Hundreds of thousands of people are coming into town. And most of them required to bring a perfect sacrifice, it would not make sense for them to carry a lamb from home all the way to Jerusalem because it may not be perfect by the time they get there. So what would they do? They would take their perfect lamb, they would sell it, they would take that money, they would travel to Jerusalem, and then they would buy a lamb that had been pre-certified, pure. The selling of animals wasn't wrong. To get the scope I did read that maybe as many as 200,000 lambs were sacrificed in this week alone. Nothing wrong with the fact that there was the selling of these animals. We also know that there was money changers. Why money changers? Well, it's because when you bought these sacrifices and when you made your offering at the temple, it had to be done in Jewish currency, but they're living in a Roman society. Most come in with Roman currency, and so they need to trade out their Roman currency for Jewish currency currency so they can give a proper offering. There was a need for money changers. The problem wasn't what was happening, but where it was happening and how it was happening. We know for a long time that this actually took place on the Mount of Olives outside the city, and it, it's possible that it wasn't even until not that long before the time of Christ that this got moved into the temple precinct. Maybe a matter of convenience. But also, perhaps, and likely, a means of profit. Because once it was inside the temple courts, the, those who ran the temple had control. And were told of taxes and unfair rates of exchange. So here we have 
in the temple court buying and selling for a profit. Jesus walked into the temple the night before and he saw it. And he returns on Monday. Walks into a place that was intended by God as a place of prayer. What we see here is a representation of all the ways the nation of Israel had departed from God. Like the tree with green leaves and no fruit, this magnificent temple complex that was built for the reputation of men and used for the profit of men. And this is why he does what he does. This is not the scene of a crazy man on a rampage, although some have viewed it that way. It's not a sinful act of anger from Jesus where years of frustration are poured out in one foul swoop. It isn't the moment where Jesus just couldn't take it anymore. No, like the cursing of the fig tree, this is a parable and it's an announcement. What's to come? It's often referred to as the cleansing of the temple. That Jesus went in and he cleansed the temple. It's probably an overstatement. Perhaps he cleansed it for an hour. But we have to guess that the next day the market was back up and running. Jesus didn't intend to shut everything down that day. He went in there to make an announcement. This will come to an end. It was a visible representation of what he came to do. He came to put an end to the hypocrisy. And he came to replace the system of sacrifices, which was given by God for his purposes, but had been misused and abused. Jesus came to fulfill and to accomplish what the temple never could. Jesus makes it clear that God was not pleased with what was happening. This system of work and not worship, man-centered and not God-centered. It's an announcement of God's displeasure, of God's recognition of their hypocrisy and of the action that would be taken. It's also an announcement that Jesus is coming to make all things new. The temple will be destroyed, but it will also be replaced. Look at verse 15 again. Jesus enters the temple and begins to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he wouldn't allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. Mark describes first what Jesus does and then he describes what Jesus says. Verse 17. We're told that Jesus is teaching them. Is it not read my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. I've heard the story my whole life, and I tended to think that this is a quick in and out, right? Runs in, flips the tables, runs everybody out, and it's over in a matter of minutes. But what we're told here is that he's teaching. Mark tells us part of what he taught comes from two different passages in the Old Testament, Isaiah 56 and Jeremiah 7. And you could spend a long time unpacking the context of those two passages. He quotes Isaiah 7 when he says, my house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. This temple was designed as a place of worship, as a place for communion with God. But what's most significant here 
is what Isaiah 56 has to say about this place. In Isaiah 56, we're told this is a place for all nations to come. Where people of all tribes and tongues will come and worship God. And Mark emphasizes this. My house should be called a house of prayer for all nations. See, God's plan was not only to save those descended from Abraham physically, but that all nations will be blessed through him. But look what's happening. In the court of the Gentiles, the place that God had intended for people to come and to to hear about him, the Jews had pushed everyone out and set up the marketplace. This was a place set aside for nations to come, and yet it had been turned into a den of robbers. That phrase, den of robbers, this comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. Here again, a description of the way God's people were living. We read in Jeremiah 7, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after gods that you have not known? Will you do all that, and then will you come into stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say that we're delivered? Only to go out and to continue doing all these abominations? Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. I wonder if there's any sense in which you see yourself in that description. Living for yourself and living in your sin, praising God for this hour a week only to head back out and to continue in unrepentance. We see as the people found security in the temple, they came there, and when they were there, they believed that they were doing what was required. They made their sacrifices, they said their prayers, but their hearts were not changed. And if you keep reading in Jeremiah 7, we see that God announces then the destruction of the temple. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing in our text. He's pointing out that because of the rebellion and hypocrisy of the people, the temple will be destroyed. He's announcing that what has come before will be brought to an end. God had given the temple and the sacrifices for good and as a shadow, and now he's come to replace it all. It's interesting, he goes in, he makes this announcement and there's a response to his announcement verse 18 the chief priests and the scribes heard it and were seeking to destroy him for they feared because all the crowd was astonished at his teaching i just want you to notice the sovereignty of god in in this this part of the passage jesus comes in and he does what he does and he says what he says and many are astonished They're not repelled, they are drawn to him. Now, of course, the chief priests and the scribes, this adds fuel to their fire. They are more motivated than ever to silence him because it's one thing for him to do all these things in Galilee, but now he's doing it in the temple courts. Think about the sovereignty of God here. Jesus walks in and he does what he does and he says what he says and they says, we will kill him. And when they do, 
it accomplishes everything that Jesus has just said he's going to do. He brings it to an end. His death was necessary in order to fulfill all that the temple and the system of sacrifice has been pointing towards. Jesus came to condemn Israel for their wickedness, but also to fulfill God's plan for saving his people. It was a shadow. The temple, the sacrificial system was a shadow. And we know that when Jesus died, that curtain that was in the Holy of Holies tore from top to bottom. And we were given access to God. The temple would be brought to an end. And we see that as we return to the tree. Verse 19. Evening came, and they went out of the city. Here again, a note of the time, because they went into the city in the morning, and Jesus went to the temple, and it's not until evening that they leave. Jesus didn't run out scared. He stood in the temple, and he taught. When it was evening, they went back out. As they passed by in the morning, this is Tuesday now, they saw the fig tree withered away to its roots, and Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered. And again, it's a parable. Jesus announced the destruction of the temple, the setting side of the nation of Israel. The tree that he cursed withered, foreshadowing what would happen. The temple and the tree have a lot in common. They both look good from the outside, attractive and fruitful, but both were barren. Jesus cursed the tree, and within a day it was gone. Jesus spoke against the misuse of the temple, and not long after it would be destroyed. And even its actual destruction is symbolic of what Jesus came to do in replacing the temple. He came as the perfect sacrifice so we can have access to the Father. Lots of details here. Maybe more explaining than we would normally get on a Sunday morning. My hope is that you have a better understanding of the seemingly odd day in the life of Christ, that it wasn't just a day he got hungry and lost his temper, and it wasn't a day when he showed that he was not perfect after all. No, it was a day when he came to fulfill all that God had planned. It's also a story that reminds us of our sinfulness, and that left to ourselves, we are like a tree with green leaves and no fruit, and we are often tempted to set up and to rely on our own system of religion. But of course, they never would have achieved it on their own. And that's why Jesus had to come. Jesus came to do what we could not. But don't we keep trying? We come be, become proud of how committed we are, of how generous we are, of how good we are at following the rules. And we can be just like the tree that Jesus cursed, full of leaves with no fruit. So I have to ask you this morning, what are you trusting in? What are you trusting in for your standing before God? Because if it's anything other than the finished work of Christ, then you have missed the gospel. It can't be gained through going to the temple and making sacrifices, whatever that looks like in your life. It's only through faith in Christ. This passage is a warning of the false hope of religion, and it's also a warning against hypocrisy. And it's easy for us to shake our heads at the Pharisees, at the system of works righteousness that they had set up. 
but we so often are tempted to live the same. We trust in our green leaves and our illusions of fruitfulness. We're fooled into thinking that the system we're a part of, even this weekly gathering, somehow guarantees our right standing before God. We need this reminder that God can see those who are far from him. God sees your heart. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you're living day in and day out, outwardly confessing him, but inwardly living for yourself, God is not fooled. So I was thinking about Jesus in the temple. I was reminded of Amos chapter 5. I wonder if you've read Amos recently. What we have in Amos 5 is a reminder that God hates hypocrisy. He says as much. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. See, when Jesus showed up in the temple, this wasn't the first time God had spoken this way. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. The peace offerings of your fatted animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me your noisy songs. The melody of your harps, I will not listen. Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He wants our hearts. God desires those who come to him in faith and their faith show their good works. None of us are perfect, but we must be sensitive. What are you doing with your sin? Are you living in repentance? Are you trying to hold on to God and your sin at the same time? I pray that we would be a people who worship him in spirit and in truth. If we had to pick a day to spend with Jesus, and we had two options, you can go with Jesus on Palm Sunday and walk in that grand procession, or you can be with him on the day when he stands in the temple and pronounces judgment. My guess is most of us want to be there on the first day because the second day might lead to danger. And if you had to pick a sermon to listen to again, you might rather listen to last week's sermon than this one. Last week, we talked about hope and promises. This week, we heard warning and judgment. Can I encourage you? We need both of these messages. We need to be reminded of the hope of the coming king, but we also need to be aware of the warnings of the coming judge. And if you are to benefit from the coming king, you must reckon with your sin. But here's the good news, and this is the gospel that's throughout this story. That if you're in your sin, it's not up to you to change your heart. This is why Jesus came. He came to be the sacrifice so that all who come to him in faith will be forgiven and saved. The way is open for all who will repent and believe. Jew or Gentile, the way is open for all. Let's trust him. Let's be faithful. Let us not hide in our sin. And let us point others to the hope that is found only in Christ.